0: Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that that we have before us this this precious passage of Scripture. Lord, we thank you for the the hope that it brings. Lord, how the the risen Christ went before his disciples this one more time and and how he restored Peter after his shameful denial. Lord, I, I thank you that the love with which you poured out on Peter Lord, that that you would pour out that same love on us. And Lord, we know that you have poured out that love on us because you you died for us and you rose for us. And Lord, you restore us when we fall. So Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to to respond in love for you. Lord, that you would fill us with, with such love for Jesus that we can't help but follow you wherever you lead. We ask this in the most beautiful name of the only Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, at the end of of John chapter 20, it looks like the story is over. It looks like it's time to roll the credits after the the horror of the crucifixion of Jesus we have the the happy ending of his resurrection the disciples believed in Jesus and he commissioned them sending him out even as the father had sent him it looks like a great place to finish and John even writes at the end of chapter 20 now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his, the disciples which are not written in this book But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. What a great ending. But then we have John 21. And you might be wondering, well, what's it doing there? Why does John include chapter 21? Some critics even go so far as to say that the John 21 shouldn't even be there. And we know that that's ridiculous, but why does John include chapter 21? John includes chapter 21 because the story is not yet over. There's one very important loose end, Peter. Now Peter was almost certainly there in the upper room as Jesus appeared to the disciples in John chapter 20, and and he was therefore one of those who believed But there was a matter that needed needed to be dealt with. His denial of Jesus. Now think about how Peter would have felt in that moment when he denied Jesus for the third time. When the rooster crowed and Jesus turned and looked at him. Jesus had prophesied that the Lord would strike the shepherd and the sheep would be scattered. But in his bravado and self-reliance, Peter had said that he would never deny Jesus, that he would never fall away, even if the other disciples would, he never would. He even declared that he was, was ready to go with Jesus, even to prison and to death. But then in John chapter 18, he had crumbled before the questions of a mere servant girl. In that moment, by the charcoal fire in the courtyard of Caiaphas, Peter had realized what he had done, and he went out and wept bitterly. Now maybe some of you can relate to Peter. I can relate to Peter. We want to serve Jesus. We want to do great things for God. But so often we fail miserably. And if we're honest with ourselves, we'll realize that this applies to all of us sometimes. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Then when we move move into sin, the flesh is joined by the accuser who is quick to remind us of our failures before a holy God. So what does Peter do? He goes fishing. He goes back to what he knew before. He goes back to doing what he was doing before he met Jesus. And this is going to be our first point. A successful fishing trip in verses 1 to 14. John begins the chapter by telling us that after the events of chapter 20, after Jesus had appeared to Mary Magdalene and and twice to the disciples in the upper room, that these things are taking place, that Jesus appeared to the disciples again. As Sinclair Ferguson says, this was more than a reunion, it was a revelation. Jesus was revealing himself to his disciples in a very intentional way, at a very intentional time, at a very intentional place. And John tells us that seven of the disciples were gathered there, fishing together on the Sea of Galilee. We have Simon Peter, the fallen leader. We have Thomas, the one who had doubted. Nathanael, the Israelite, in whom there was no guile. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, or more accurately, the sons of thunder. And two others, probably Andrew and Philip. Now, this event took place at the same location where Jesus had first called them. there are many parallels here with the call of the first disciples as is described in in Matthew 418 to 20 and mark 116 to 20 and in Luke 1 5 to eleven and John expected that his, his readers would have been very familiar with these events. please turn with me in your Bible to, to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. By the lake of Gennesaret, also known as the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw the boats belonging to Peter and Andrew and their partners, James and John. And Jesus got into Simon Peter's boat and he taught the people. And then he told Peter to put out a little deeper into the water and to, to... throw their nets into the water to catch some fish. But Peter said that they had worked all night and had caught nothing. But nonetheless, he obeyed. And they caught such a a large number of fish that the nets began to break. And the boats began to sink down in the water. And then Simon Peter fell at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. But Jesus told them not to be afraid, for from now on, he would be catching men. And so they left everything and followed him. But then three years later, after traveling with Jesus and after being taught by him and after witnessing his miracles and his love and after the events of of Calvary and the resurrection, after they had personally seen Christ, Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And these other six disciples told him that they'd go with him. They'd gone back to the things that they left before. They'd, they'd gone back to the Sea of Galilee, back to the boats, back to the nets, back to the fish. Now, it wasn't wrong for them to go back to Galilee. In fact, they'd been given instructions to do that very thing. Jesus had told them in, in Mark fourteen twenty-eight in the very conversation in which Jesus prophesied Peter's denial, but after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And the angels told the women at the tomb in Mark 16, But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. And then even more explicitly, Jesus said to them in Matthew 28.10, Well, Jesus told the women on the way back from the tomb, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So they were to go to Galilee. But what were they to do? Apart from, from one instruction to, to, to go to a mountain, that they, they were to wait for Jesus. They were to wait for Jesus, but they were not instructed to go fishing. Now it wasn't necessarily wrong for them to, to, to have secular employment that Paul did it. Paul was at, supported himself as a tent maker. And we don't know exactly what Peter's motivation for doing this was. We, we don't know for sure that it was wrong. Maybe Peter felt like such a failure that he had no right to be a disciple. Maybe he wanted to go back to the only thing that he felt that he knew how to do. Maybe he was, it was simply trying to feed himself and his family. We don't really know his motivation. But we do know this, that things were about to change. Things were about to change. As D.A. Carson points out, it's impossible to imagine any of this taking place after Pentecost. He says most emphatically that this is not the portrait of believers who have received the promised paraclete. There is neither joy nor the assurance, not to mention the sense of mission and the sense of unity that characterize the church when freshly endowed with the promised spirit. These men were out in the boat, but they didn't catch anything all night. Now, night is a a common time for fishing in that region. But throughout the Gospel of John, John uses light and darkness imagery to point to the presence or to the absence of Jesus. And as the night waned after an unsuccessful night of fishing... Peter probably would have felt very much like he was on the outside looking in. He wasn't a successful disciple. He wasn't even a successful fisherman. He wouldn't have felt like Peter the stone. He would have felt like plain old Simon. But there, in the middle of the dejection and defeat, comes the Savior. Day was breaking. Jesus stood there on the shore, but the disciples didn't recognize him. Maybe it was the twilight, or maybe his identity was, had been concealed. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? Of course, he knew the answer to the question, but they answered simply no. And then he told them to cast their net on the right side of the boat, and that they would find some. They did so, and the net was then so full of fish that they could not even haul it in. The disciple whom Jesus loved, obviously John, told Peter, it is the Lord. Like we saw last week, John was quick to understand, but Peter was was quick to act. And then so so having been stripped down to a loincloth for work, he immediately threw on his outer garment and then jumped out of the boat into the water to go to Jesus. Now he'd done this once before, but with a different result. The other disciples followed behind in the boat, <clears throat> excuse me, dragging the net full of fish. It wasn't very far to the shore, it was about, about 200 cubits or 100 yards. And when they got there, they saw a charcoal fire with fish grilling and bread. And Jesus told the disciples to bring some of the fish that they had caught and then so Simon Peter went back on the boat and hauled the net ashore. And it was full of, of large fish. John tells us there was, there was 153 of them, but the net didn't break. Now there's all kinds of, of speculation as to what the 153 represents. But we, we have to take the plain reading of the text and, and, and just say that th- these were 153 fish. This was a lot of fish for these men. But it wasn't fishing expertise that helped Jesus to know that the fish were there on the right side of the boat, even though he did create those fish. This was a miracle. Jesus Jesus was showing that he was still Lord of the sea. Now this this was a miracle with an express purpose, and it was meant to mirror the events of their call when Jesus had told them that they would be fishers of men. Jesus had then given them a huge catch of fish, and now he did it again. And soon, beginning at Pentecost, they would draw in a huge number of men. They had to get back to work. And here Jesus invited them to come and have breakfast. But the disciples didn't dare ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. The events of their call would have just been been jumping out like a lightning bolt in their minds here Jesus gave them bread and fish and he ate with them, proving that the resurrection wasn't just spiritual, that he was there physically before them. But think about this for a moment. When they got to shore, Jesus had breakfast waiting for them. As their Lord, he would have been well within his rights to demand that they prepare food for him, but instead he was yet again serving them. Jesus wasn't waiting there on shore to beat Peter for his his denial. He was there to restore him. Jesus took the initiative in bringing Peter back. Have you ever sinned against someone only to have them respond to you in kindness? It makes you feel pretty sheepish, doesn't it? But what about if it was god himself what about if it was god himself who took the initiative in restoring you this is what peter experienced and if you are sitting here today as a born again follower of jesus christ this is your experience as well jesus took the initiative to restore you and he did it through a cross and he continues to take the initiative to restore you every time you fail. But what about if we had that kind of attitude when others sinned against us? So often, when people sin against us, we want to be quick to, to, to point out what they did wrong, we, we want to make them feel bad for it, we, we want a measure of justice. But is this for God's glory or for ours? Brothers and sisters, justice was satisfied for us on the cross. So so when when others sin, we, we don't ignore the problem. We're commanded to go to them. But we're to do so with a heart of love and service that is seeking to restore them for the glory of God we too are called to be fishers of men. May the Lord grant success to our fishing trips. But now John, the apostle of love, who is so named for his focus on love throughout his gospel accounts and his epistles, focuses on the nature of love. As Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? In verses 15 to 17, this is their second point. Here we have this this poignant conversation between Jesus and Peter, where after breakfast, Jesus asks Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Notice here that he doesn't refer to Peter as Peter, but as Simon. This was the name that he had been born with, but Jesus had given him the name Peter at the time of his, his Caesarea confession, that Jesus was the Christ. This conversation is about bringing Peter back to who he was. There by a charcoal fire. Events that had taken place by another charcoal fire were brought to mind. Three times Peter had denied Jesus, and three times Jesus asked Peter if he loved him. The first time again, Jesus asks Peter, Do you love me more than these? Now, does he mean, do you love me more than these fishing implements? Or do you love me more than than these other men? I believe that that, that these are are essential questions, but a third meaning is more likely from the wider context. Remember that, that Peter had declared that even if the other disciples fell away, he would never fall away. So Jesus is asking him, do you really love me more than these other disciples do? And Peter replies, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So Jesus told him, feed my lambs. Now Jesus asked him a, a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter replies, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus told him, tend my sheep. But then a third time, Jesus asks Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? John tells us that Peter was grieved or literally cut to the heart because Jesus had asked him again. And he replied, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. With increased appreciation for the omniscience of Jesus, Peter knew that the Lord was fully aware of the extent of his love. And Jesus told him, feed my sheep. There's something interesting revealed when you look at the Greek verbs here that are used for love. The first two two times, Jesus asks Peter, Do you agape me? And Peter replies, You know that I philo you. Then the third time, Jesus asks, Do you philase me? And Peter replies, I philo you. Now, there's been much discussion and debate over these words. Earlier commentators like A.T. Robertson tended of the opinion that by using agapeo, that, that, that uh, Jesus is referring to a higher form of love, while phileo refers more to brotherly love. However, a, a couple of, of influential modern commentators, ne, namely Leon Morris and D.A. Carson, emphasize the fact that there is semantic overlap between these two words that sometimes they're used interchangeably in Scripture, even in John. For example, when, when John quotes Jesus saying the Father loves the Son in John 35, he uses agapeo, while in 520, the same sentence, he uses the word phileo. Also, agapeo does not only refer to to good love or to sacrificial love or to divine love. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4:10 that Demas in love with the present world deserted him using the using agapeo. And so these commentators say that the the different choice of words was just stylistic. But if we look at the if we look at the text, we need to realize that this is not simply stylistic. John was recording an actual conversation. He was recording it accurately as it actually happened. And it wouldn't make sense for for Peter to use a different verb for love if he intended to say the same thing that Jesus said. And Peter even draws a distinction between the two forms of love in his list of virtues in 1 Peter 1 5 to 7, saying that we are to supplement our faith with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Supplement your, your phileo with agapeo. So there's something going on here. We need to notice, too, that, that Peter declines even to, to refer to the more than these parts. He simply says, "Lord, you know that I love you." But in his humility now, in his new-found humility, he's not willing to, to elevate himself. He's not willing to compare himself even to the other disciples. It's just an example of, of the fact, there's a lesson here for us, that, that, that we, we when we're looking at our, our interpretation, we need to be very careful not to simply accept whatever commentaries are popular at the moment. We need to study the Scriptures for ourselves in order to try to, to, to figure out the meaning and the power of the Holy Spirit as, as best we can also want to speak for a moment about the command that Jesus gives Peter regarding his sheep. Here we have Jesus, the chief shepherd, caring for his sheep by reminding this under-shepherd of his role and of his responsibility to feed the sheep that were Jesus's. Peter had a specific calling on his life. As an apostle, his ministry was to establish the church and he would would feed Christ's sheep through the composition of Scripture and through the proclamation of the same. In the second instance, where he says, tend my sheep, the Greek verb could also be translated shepherd. Shepherd. This here has the more broad sense of to care, and to to, while while feeding them is part of that, it it has the wider sense of protection, of guidance, and of nurturing. And these are all responsibilities of the under-shepherd. This is obviously Peter's inspiration for writing in 1 Peter 5, 5, 1-4, that we are to shepherd, that elders are to shepherd the flock of God. So as an elder, as an under under shepherd, this is my responsibility to shepherd you. And I I tremble under the fact that that when I'm aware of of my failings in this and to know that I will give an account for how, how I have fulfilled my office. And please, Pray for me that 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 the Lord would strengthen me to do what He commands me to do. Let's consider again though this this concept of love of what it means to love Jesus. To love Jesus is to obey Jesus. To obey Jesus is to follow Jesus. So easily. We turn around and walk in the other direction. So often we, we, we try to make excuses. We we say, well, well, I'm not I'm not going to church because because so and so offended me. Or they they say, I'm not I'm not going to serve that person because that person has never done anything for me. They say I I I'm I'm going to I'm going to harbour unforgiveness because that person has not repented. Or I'm not going to sacrifice my life for Jesus because this world is too comfortable. Whatever our excuses are, no excuse, no excuse will be accepted before the throne of a holy God. Jesus told Peter and he tells us, follow me. John exhorts us in in 1 John 3, 8, little children do not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It's really easy to say the words, I love Jesus. Those words are easy. But do you really love Jesus? Do you really love Jesus? This will be evident in your obedience remember john fourteen fifteen. if you love me you will keep my commandments if you love jesus you will obey him you will follow him remember the greatest commandment is to love the lord your god with all of your heart all of your soul all of your mind and all of your strength and to love your neighbor like yourself This is the, these are the greatest commands. But consider the standard. It is absolute perfection. To love God all the time, perfectly. To love others, even with the, 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 the same level of love that we have for ourselves. And if we're honest, we realize that we don't do this that none of us really follow Jesus in that way. But Jesus is quick to restore. Jesus is quick to restore. He's quick to restore Peter, and he's quick to restore us. Finally, in verses 18 to 25, we see the extent of love. The extent of love. Jesus then tells Peter in verse 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. John tells us that this refers to the kind of death whereby Peter would glorify God. And this, this stretching forth of Peter's hands refers very likely to crucifixion. Jesus told Peter, Follow me. These were the same words that he had used when he had first called Peter back in Luke chapter 5. But this was not a request, this was a command. And every human being is given the same command. Repent and follow Jesus. But it's only disciples who will actually do it. Jesus said in Matthew 16.24, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Just before Peter had denied Jesus in John 13.36, he had asked Jesus, Lord, where where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. Peter would follow Jesus. He would follow Jesus to the very end. And the tradition has it that that Peter was actually crucified upside down, not wanting to to die in the same way that Jesus died. So he was a martyr in both senses of the word. By his death he was a witness for Christ. By his death, he glorified God. Now back in, in John chapter 18 and John 13, we saw how Peter's denial was every bit as bad as Judas's betrayal. And I asked then, what, what's the difference between Judas and Peter? Jesus. The only difference between Judas and Peter is Jesus. And beloved, the only difference between Judas and us is Jesus. This was a fulfillment of Luke 22, verses 31 and 32, where Jesus said, to Peter Simon Simon behold satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat but i have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and when you have turned again strengthen your brothers so beloved of god jesus is interceding for us yes we will fail yes we will stumble Yes, we will too often turn away from following Jesus. But he is interceding for us. So if you are a Christian, if you are elect of God, if you have been predestined, if you are being preserved by Jesus, you will not, you will never utterly fall away. You will sin and you will sin grievously but you will never utterly fall away because Jesus is interceding for you because you have been sealed with his Holy Spirit. Jesus interceded for Peter. Jesus reinstated Peter. And Calvin points out that that such a restoration was necessary both for Peter and for his hearers. For Peter, that he might the more boldly execute his office, being assured of the calling with which Christ had again invested him. And for his hearers, that the stain which attached to his person might not be uh, the occasion of the despising of the gospel. Do you see that? Not only did did Peter have to be restored so that he could could fulfill the appointment, the calling that, that God had called him to, but also, if Peter could fall away and not be restored, then the gospel could be defamed. Then God could be defamed because God would have lost one of his sheep. But beloved, there's another lesson that we can take away here as well. One about the faithfulness of the Lord to us. He doesn't just restore erring apostles. He restores us every time we fail. And this reveals the true nature of love. We love him because he first loved us. We continue to love him because he continues to love us. But then in verse 20, Peter got distracted. Jesus was was saying, Follow me, keep your eye on me. But he turned and looked to the disciple that Jesus loved, to John. And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? This reminds me of, of the little brother. When, when, when an older brother gets a privilege or, or something, and the younger brother says, well, well that's not fair. What about, what about me? It's not fair that, that I'm not like, getting treated the same way as my brother is. And so often we're like that, aren't we? We, we turn from keeping our eyes on Jesus. We say, well, what about this person? Maybe they don't have to face the the trials that I'm facing. Maybe everything seems to be going well for them. Maybe they don't don't have the, the, the family issues or the employment issues that I have to deal with. It's like saying it's not fair. But Jesus says to him, If it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. He's saying, Peter, it's none of your business what I do with Jesus. You follow me. Don't worry about John. I'll take care of John. You follow me. We need to be single-minded. When we follow Jesus, if we get distracted by anything, we're not following him. But because of this, word got around that, that, that John wasn't going to die. But Jesus had never said that he wasn't going to die. He just said that, that if, it, if he doesn't die until I come, what's, what's that to you? Now again, from tradition, we, we have that, that, that John was actually the only one of the, of the disciples who, who wasn't martyred. The other, the other 10 and, and the other 11 that w- the 11 that was added were all martyred for their faith. But John wasn't. He was, he was exiled, he was exiled to Patmos. We, we read about that in Revelation. But it, it seems that, that he lived to, to a ripe old age and, and was never killed for his faith. Just thinking again here, it's, it reminds me of of the game of, of broken telephone when, when something when a story first gets told and then it, it goes from ear to ear to ear and, and gets transformed until it's really not like what it originally was. May, may this be true of uh, may this never be true of us. May we never pass along information in the form of gossip that especially when it be, it gets twisted to slander. But may we also never be careful to misrepresent what Scripture teaches. To actually present it as it is in context. And then John goes on to say that, 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 that he had written these things and they can be relied upon, that his testimony is true. He says that, that Jesus did many other things so many things that, that, if, if, that the, if their books were to be written, the world itself couldn't contain them. Now, he's not just speaking in hyperbole here. This is literally true. Jesus is the sovereign God. Our human minds can't even begin to comprehend all of the things that he has done and, and is doing and will do. But this is also true in the more narrow sense of all that Jesus did to accomplish salvation for the elect through his incarnation, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection and his ascension. These are the things that Jesus did for us. Not just for Peter, but for us. And again, from from John 20, Verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These are written so that you will believe. You will believe. True disciples, though, don't just believe, they follow. That was the command to Peter, and it is the command to us. Jesus said, Follow me. Whether it's to martyrdom or to exile or to mocking or to self denial, the command is the same for us all. Follow Jesus. Let's pray. our great and glorious God. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for Jesus, the sinless Son of God, who died that we might live. Who died that we might live not just just a natural, selfish life, but who died that we might live a life solely devoted to him. Lord, I pray that you would fill us all with with such love for Jesus that we too would be willing to forsake everything and to follow him. Lord, that by your grace and for your glory that you would enable us to lay down every sin and every weight that hinders us and to run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Lord Jesus, will you fill us with such a a profound and powerful sense of the gospel that we can't help but love you, that we can't help but follow you, and that thereby you would gain great glory for your name as you enable us to follow you to the very end. As we ask this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen.